Dobrý večer, zdraví vás Melting Pot a Petr Vizina. Dnešního hosta není nutné dlouho představovat. Vše, co ví o světě, se naučil v mateřské školce, což říká titul jeho nejpopulárnější knihy. Jeho zájmem jsou zdánlivě obyčejné věci. V ohňostrojení, což je kniha, která mu právě vychází česky, jsou takovými maličkostmi třeba židle nebo dobře ustlaná postel. A samozřejmě ptát se můžete i vy na facebookové stránce Melting Potu. Dámy a pánové, spisovatel Robert Fulgum. Mr. Fulgum, thank you for joining Melting Pot online from Moab, Utah. Dobrý věče. There's another big room that has a lot of what I'm thinking about up on the wall, but this is where my computer is and my, I use a pencil and a fountain pen to start everything with because it's technology I can understand. <laughs> but this is my space and uh, maybe later in the program I can move my computer around and you can see some of it. And what is Moab Utah like? Because I saw it on the internet, it's, it's all rocks and <laughs> valleys, isn't it? Yes, red rocks and big, big, big river, the Colorado River, and uh -huh. it's far southeast of the state of Utah, when we call it the American Desert Southwest or the Colorado Plateau. So there are lots of national parks and beautiful places to hike, and but it's hot and it's dry in the summertime. Mm -hmm. uh, in the wintertime, fall, when it's very lovely, we get lots of visitors from all over the world. We go to the supermarket and I hear, French and German and Czech and I, people from the Czech Republic come and visit me, which is quite wonderful. So you're a man in a desert, but not deserted, right? No, not deserted. And I, <laughs> I can go, I live on, a, there's a mountain range in the middle of this where I live up in a valley, but some distance away, you can see the great open plains of desert where there's nothing and a big variety of, of landscape. Where are your biggest uh, closest neighbors? How far is it to get to somebody? About two miles away. Uh, and the people who live in that close by houses, these are second homes. So they're uh -huh. not here in the summertime. So at night I can go out and sit on my porch and I see no lights. I hear no sounds. I can hear the bats flying through the air searching for insects. It's very quiet. Last time we saw each other in Ostrava four years ago, uh, it was a, a full-packed place, thousands of people. Where would we be now if there was no pandemic? <laughs> well, I was invited back to Melting Pot, and uh, we had some really elaborate plans. I Last year, uh, two years ago, I traveled to 28 small towns with two actors, and we formed an acting company which we now call Fulgham Fireworks, Flying Fireworks. Mm -hmm. And we to do a production at Melting Pot. And then I was invited to uh, speak to the International Congress of Psychologists and had all kinds of plans. And uh, I'm writing a column for Marianne Magazine. And so I was looking forward to meeting the staff and meeting the, the uh, director and, and all kinds of things. But I, I say, no, 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 don't worry. We just postpone next year. But I guess you must have felt a bit of a disappointment, didn't you? Well, sure, but then that's life. Life is full of disappointments and very big ones. I didn't get to travel for the four months. I didn't get to go to Crete. I couldn't go to Greece. Mm -hmm. But you know, things, good things get postponed, and I found a way to use that time. And then on a small scale, as I said to you earlier, I wanted to have blueberries for breakfast, and I didn't have any in the refrigerator. But my notion about this comes from um, a cartoon, Charlie Brown and the Peanuts cartoon. You're familiar with those? Yeah. Charlie Brown is talking to Linus, and they're making their lunch. And Charlie Brown says, I hate this. I, every day, it's peanut butter and jam and chocolate milk. It's the same thing every day. Drives me crazy. And Linus says to him, who makes your lunch, Charlie Brown? And Charlie Brown says, 
I do. <laughs> <laughs> but well, you know, surely... my attitude about disappointment, you know, I make the lunch, my expectation yeah. will just postpone. So. But is there a sort of a general way how you handle your own disappointments? Because it's one thing to get blues, blueberries somewhere, which is doable. And it's pretty another thing, you know, when things come to nothing. Sure, sure. People die. Uh, people get sick. Uh, there are accidents. I mean, this is life. And part of my expectation is that one will not always get what one wants when mm. one wants. And sometimes you'll get something you don't want at all. I'm very lucky. I'm still in really good health and in good spirits. And uh, my disappointment would be to find out tomorrow that uh, I have some major disease or whatnot, because mm. I have lots of things I want to do for the next 10 years. So, <laughs> Was that a disappointment in your life? Because I'm just curious about disappointment as something very common. And you write about common things. Yeah. And, and disappointment is something we all experience maybe a few times a day. So uh, you mentioned that you try to use bad things as a motive to do something good. Uh, and you said that you used time during the pandemics to write. Uh, yeah. Anything else uh, we can make out of the situation that we cannot see each other face to face? We talk through, you know, computers. Yes, but imagine how few years ago we could not do this. That's right. Yeah. I have a, a companion who lives in England on the island of Alderney out in the Channel Islands. She's seven hours away. And if things were the way they were, let's say, 10 years ago, we would have to write letters every day or very expensive long-distance calls. As it is, we talk by the face app twice a day. And wow. so you think, for whatever I think about technology, this is one of the great things. You and I can meet again. And Right. Yeah, that, that's that's a good point. I didn't think. This will be 3D. You know, I can reach out and touch your nose. <laughs> yeah, you, you can appear here in Strzeszowice or I can appear in Moab. Yes, yes, time travel. Who knows? I mean, <laughs> you're old enough and I'm certainly old enough to know that amazing things keep happening. And uh, you never know. You don't expect this. I didn't expect to have a device I can hold in my hand and talk to anybody in the world. But I'm hmm. true, yeah. true. Um, I'm sort of like observing your credo, uh, shall I call it? When we met in Ostrava, you talked about what I would call investment of faith. And you said, any person is to be trusted unless they prove otherwise. That's what yeah. we talked about before going on stage. Yeah. Uh, is, is, what, what sort of faith investment is this? And does it work for you in life? Well, my experience has been, of course, that there is a dark side to the human race. There are dark sides to every individual, and there's a dark side to me. But what I look for is the good, and I look for the connection. I'll give you a good example. This week in Sturgis, South Dakota, a little town of 7,000 people, there are 250,000 people on Harley motorcycles. It's the biggest gathering of Harley motorcycles in the world. And most people think, oh, those are bad people. They're into drugs and sex and violence and so forth. Last night I was eating in a local restaurant and there were 10 people on motorcycles who came in. And so I went over and I said to them, I've never said, may I talk to you? And, you know, they were surprised because I don't look like them. They had their whole uniform and colors on it. And I said, but I'm really curious. I've never ridden on a motorcycle, never sat on a motorcycle. I have no idea what that life is like. But when I see you guys out on the highway, it seems like a really hard way to go. It's windy and cold. Huh? And they were so astonished that someone would ask them about their lives. And I ended up talking to them for almost two hours. And uh -huh. then they let me go outside and sit on their motorcycle. They wouldn't let me drive it, but they let me sit on it. So I know what that feels like to sit on a big Harley motorcycle. But I, I find this very common. If you take an interest in people and say, I, I want to know about you, tell me. It's amazing how people were pleased to stop and tell you all about their lives. That's not always the case. I mean, I've seen some motorcyclists. I'm not sure I would approach, but they're very few, you know? And, we, and I talked to these guys and I thought, you know, they all have jobs, they all have wives, they all have children, 
They, one was an attorney, one was a doctor, another was a bus driver. You got to have money to have that thing and you have time. And you know, these were not evil, drugs taking, tattooed, you know, these were real people who liked riding motorcycles. So. Well, I love that method. You're first observing and listening and not judging and not uh, acting on your sort of stereotypes. Did you have to learn it or were you born that way? No, no, no. I, yeah, I've always been curious all my life. And slowly but surely as I have learned to approach people. In fact, one of the things I love to do is to follow people. We'll pass somebody on the street and you notice, and they, oh, that's an interesting person, and you keep going. But if you turn around and discreetly follow them and to see where they're going, how they walk, what they're doing, you learn something really important about other people. So I, I play spy a lot and follow people. <laughs> You're spying on them. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> and over and over and over, I have learned by my first impression that what I learned by following and seeing what they were doing, or sometimes in a grocery store, I don't shop. I follow somebody who interests me. Mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm very discreet, and uh, I've never gotten any problems with this, but I always find that my, my first impression is not the whole thing. Right. And, yeah. Well, what I noticed, I hope I'm not wrong, uh, between you and the Czech audience, it's almost like a, you seem almost pastoral, like somebody telling them, your life is not a mistake. Uh, you're here on a purpose. And it makes sense to make something out of your life. It seems trivial, but there are no many people, pastors in this country. Do, are you aware of that, that you sort of fulfill that kind of thing, the kind of void. I never thought and imagined in my wildest imagination that I would end up with a close relationship for 30 years with a, a small country in the middle of Europe where I've never been, don't speak the language, blah, blah, blah. And yet I have found this incredible sympathetico with the Czech people. But I finally got an answer as to why that's the case. Last time I was in the Czech Republic signing books, there's an old lady who came up at the very end and she said, Mr. Fulgham, I want you to know that I believe in uh, people coming back in a second life. And she said, in a previous life, you were Czech. And in your next life, you will be Czech. And I thought to myself, oh, so when I die, I'm not going to heaven or to hell. I'm coming to the Czech Republic. And I thought, what? <laughs> Okay, congratulations. To that. <laughs> so watch I'm... me in the streets of Prague a hundred years from now. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I I noticed that I have not heard you talk about your experience of being actually a pastor, uh, a Unitarian pastor. Did, was it something that uh, came naturally to you, or was it uh, something you really had to struggle to be? Well, I've been out of the active parish ministry involved in organized religion for almost 30 years now. Hmm. But 20 years, I was a pastor of a church part-time, while at the same time I was teaching drawing and painting in a high school. So it was a you know, very full, busy life. But my experience as a young man in a Baptist church in the middle of Texas was very positive. I liked the community. The man who was the minister of the church was very wise and very thoughtful. And I, I thought, he's being useful in his community. And he was very, very respected. And I thought, having a goal of somehow being useful, being a teacher, being a pastor, that appealed to me. I never expected to make my living and my life built around writing. But what it means now is that I can be useful to a, a lot more people. I write a new essay every week on my web journal. It's free. It's not a hmm. podcast. You don't have to pay anything for it. And I'm just saying, here's what I've noticed. This is what I've been thinking about. And I get wonderful responses, huge numbers of people from the people. Yeah. So, so that, that the motive of being, of being useful, that you carry on from sort of a pastoral thing to do something else, but still being useful to the community and people. Yeah, well, that, that was my feeling before I actually became uh -huh. a pastor. 
I've always been involved in social causes and doing social work. Uh, you know, I was involved in the American anti-Vietnam War movement and the civil rights movement. Uh, I contribute to politics. I contribute to uh, uh, Human Rights Watch. Uh, I, I'm still, I don't write about politics because other people do that much better than I, but I've always been very engaged in saying, what can I do? And even in a small way, this is why my wearing a face shield and a red rubber nose is not an incidental thing. It's figuring out how can I say something lighthearted to a stranger. And that's you know, pretty much drives my life. Are you aware if the lady was right, so next time you might uh, be born in Czech and become a priest in one of those Gothic or Baroque churches? <laughs> no, I would be an actor on stage. I'm fascinated with the theater. I would love to be a traveling actor. That's my next goal. I'll probably come back as the Czech cow. <laughs> <laughs> Why cow? <laughs> I don't know. You know, you, you don't know what your karma is going to bring, but you have to be open to the possibilities. That would be a great, <laughs> a great friendly cow. <laughs> Now, uh, there is one. Uh, um, you mentioned your uh, website and sort of a thought that you published. There is one thought called committee. And uh, you are actually explaining why you don't take strong political sides because uh, trained in empathy, you can empathize with people of, uh, of all sorts of behaving, thinking and expressing. Is this right. is your position, basic position yeah. of life? In my private life, I have very clear values and I serve very clear causes and, but in my writing life, I don't think it would be useful to take, you know, to, to write about that. On top of that, there are people far better informed than I, mm. far better uh, writers about politics and the social situation. I don't write about the pandemic because there's, what can I say that hasn't been said far more than anybody wants to hear. And what I write about is what's going on in one's daily personal life. No matter what's going on politically or what's going on with the pandemic or health-wise or whatnot, you still get up in the morning, take the sheet off your face and decide if it's worth the risk or the reward to get up and go on with your day. And a lot of the small things in our lives are what form the quality of our day. And uh, so that's, you know, that's a, a niche that I think I can be useful in because I'm good at that. Yet, uh, in the title of your new book in Czech, there is a passion, there is fire in the title. It's Ohnjostrenyi. So what do you mean when you, when you talk about your inner flame? Well, what I mean is that sense of drive to do something that's useful and to think, to read. Uh, this past winter, I decided that there was a big gap in my knowledge. I knew all about Roman history and Greek history and so forth, but I never read the original, you know, I had never read Suetonius and Herodotus and all those people. So I thought, okay, I'll get the big library of those books and I'll start in. And about halfway through my reading, I thought, this sounds very familiar. It's all about war and greed and pandemics and plagues and corruption and but human beings have not changed a lot. So now I'm reading Dante, which I really don't understand at all, but I'm pledging along trying to get a handle on Dante. Yeah, you will see what he has to say about heaven and hell and yeah. tragedy and comedy. Do, yeah. do you find it uh, entertaining or amusing or didactic? I'm only about uh, 200 pages in and I find it, I find the language beautiful. I can't read Italian, I wish I could, but I, try, I find the language beautiful. I, I'm always finding a word or a phrase or something. That, hmm. But for the overall thing, I am not a Christian. Uh, I am, uh, I have know about the world, I guess I grew up a Christian, but I don't think about things the way he does, except I see what he's saying as a metaphor for the world and the you know, substitute words. And uh, well, there is hell on earth. There is, we create our own hell. I believe in that sense of, of hell. I don't believe when I die, I'm going to hell because I'm coming to Prague. So. <laughs> 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 well, uh, this this is a sort of a thought, you know, like going to Prague. Is it going to heaven or hell? Something between, something behind. Well, what I've learned by being in the Czech Republic is that, and I've traveled all over the world. I've lived in Japan and Argentina and uh, Greece, and 
Yeah, I find that underneath the, the surface superficialities, people are a great deal alike. Right. This is too long to explain this, but I find the Czechs and the Cretans very much alike in the, with how they think about what the world is and how do you do things. The Cretans, like the Russian, like the uh, Czechs, have been through a lot of hell, wars and starvation and you name it. And uh, they get up and charge on. You know, there, there's this fiery spirit of, by God, we can get on with it. And uh, I love walking around the streets of small towns and even Prague in, in Ostrova. And I see old people, really old people, people in their 90s maybe. And so I will turn and follow them. And I'm always impressed knowing what they have been through that they march along like they're going someplace and have something to do and they talk to people. And, you know, that's that's part of the reason I come to the Czech Republic. There's this sort of uh, fiery resistance to you can't keep us down. Ah, so you so you come to watch Babička or Dědeček, the grandmother or grandfather of the yeah. Czech origin. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you a funny story that's in my book. Uh, I was on the number nine tram in Prague and the rule, cultural rule, is that uh, if there's an old person, then you should get up and give that person your seat. So this is Babichka there. She she looked good 90. She was all in black and all hunched over. And I got on the tram. Now, I don't look old, sound old, act old, or dress old, but I'm clearly not Czech by the way I dress. And she looks at me, and she gets up, and she offers me her seat. And I said, no, 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 I, I don't, no, thank you. No, no, please, you have, proceed, you must sit down. And so I said, no, 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 no. And then she got belligerent. Sit, she says, sit, sit down. And, and this guy sitting next to me said, you better sit down because she's not going to give up. So like a fool, I sat down and I thought, okay, I will make my own gesture. So I reached up to pull her down onto my lap. Now, what I didn't realize that gravity had affected this woman's body and where her breasts were once up here, her breasts were now down around her waist. And so when I grabbed her to pull her in me, I grabbed her breasts. Ah. And she, I, th I didn't know she could jump that high. She jumped up and she shouted at me and, you know, and the guy said, you don't know what, you don't want to know what she's telling you in Czech. And she waved her finger and got up. So, <laughs> so these are your prep. These are your preparation lessons for the Czech existence, Mr. Fuji. Yeah, but it's important that she thought I was old. And I wasn't old. She didn't think she was. That's amazing. You were just being polite. Yeah. And, yeah. and you're pointing that, uh, you're saying that we don't have this idea of ourselves because we, we don't watch ourselves. We see other people, but we don't yeah. see ourselves. But she noticed me. Yeah. I'll tell this story too, because it's a good example of Czech humor. Uh, I, when I was on the same tram, I was going to two or three stations and a young woman got on and I'm sitting there and uh, she said to me, do you speak English? Yes. Uh, she said, would you mind if I sit down? I said, no, but why? She said, I'm pregnant. Oh, okay. So I got up and she sat down and I looked at her and I thought, she doesn't look very pregnant to me. So I said to her, how, how long have you been pregnant? She says, about 30 minutes and I'm exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> you see? Yeah. yeah. That's great. You're pastoring. You're actually a pastor to the nation because that's a pastoral thing to say, yeah, she, she entrusted you with the information nobody else knew except the father. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Well, if you, I'm in my mid-80s now, and I look like I'm harmless. You know, little, little do people know, but they look at me and think he's a harmless old man. So I, I get a lot of, it gives me entree to people if I stalk and talk to people. And, of course, the problem for me, especially in Czech, in, uh, in Prague, is a lot of people now recognize me on the street. And they won't accept my lies. They will stop. I will stop and say, are you Robert Fulton? I say, no, 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 no. He's much better looking than I am. And they say, you're Robert Fulton. <laughs> uh, oh, too bad. It's, it's, it's going to get even worse after this interview, actually. I'm sorry to say. It's not worse in the sense that uh, it gives me immediate access to people because I can turn around and say, tell me about yourself. Uh -huh. uh, 
take me someplace for coffee, take me to, you know, show me your neighborhood. Mm. And it gives me a key that very few people have because they know enough about me to know that they can trust that I'm interested in them and they know why. So it's, it's not a problem. So, so basically, uh, you are still interested in people. Uh, some people say that once people start bother you, you, you don't want to meet anybody new. That's, that's old age. That's being old. So basically, you're not, you're not old because you have not had enough of people. No, 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 no that's true. I, there's nothing more exciting to me than someone says, are you Robert Fulgerman? I'll say, well, I'll tell you who I am if you'll tell me who you are. And then we're off and running. I've had some wonderful evenings, especially young people will do this. They will take me out for a beer. They will take me out for dinner. Mm. Uh, and, and, and I'm really good at getting other people to talk about themselves because I can say, you know about me. I don't know about you. Tell me. So. Now, there, is a, there are a few people in your new book I would love to meet. One of them is a gentleman who is talking to watermelons. I have never seen anything like that in the <laughs> world. So perhaps you can tell us the story before we, uh, we all read it. Well, we all know people who seem to have special skills or talents that we don't have. For example, my father was raised around horses. He had horses, and no matter how upset a horse would get, he could calm the horse down, talk to the horse, and we call this in American culture a horse whisperer. Uh -huh. well, people who have special insights, and this particular man who is, sells vegetables in my neighborhood in Crete, he knows when a watermelon is ripe. And every time I've gone and you know, tried to pick one out myself, and he'd say, no, 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 that's not ripe. This one is ripe, and he's never been wrong. So I call him a you know, melon whisperer because he has that. Some people have that about other people. You find teachers who are really good with kids, and they can be with a child who's all upset and whatnot and just calm it all down. They seem to have that empathy mm -hmm. of what it's like to be on the other side. So I have respect. I'm not psychic, and I don't believe in extra you know, phenomena, but I have this respect for people who seem to have some special talent perceiving and that's because they're paying really close attention this man raises melons he's seen a lot of melons he knows melons and i don't know melons <laughs> why is he whispering to them that was my only question when i read about it no idea i think that's just part of his pulling my leg uh, <laughs> but he will say i will talk to the melon and he will, <laughs> he will say it's right take it or no 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 wait a week and uh, I think it's a game on his part because he's playful. He's an older guy and he likes to play and he flirts with the young women who come in and he has a light heart. So I think whispering is part of his act, but that's fine with me. You know? So you're saying there is not a certain age when you should stop flirting or appreciating women around you. <laughs> no, I wouldn't touch that with a stick. Um, I, I, I can say, I wrote this down because it's important. Um, this is something in this new book, there are places where I stop and say, these are lines out of my woodpile. I'm not writing about them. I'm just saying these are in my, some are on my wall, whatnot. And there's one about play. Uh, and I'll read them to you. I say, foolish joy is the product of play and a life without joy is not worth having. A child who doesn't play is not a child. An adult who doesn't play has lost contact with the child inside him. When childhood dies, I love this one, when childhood dies, its corpses are called adults. We don't quit playing when we grow old. We grow old when we quit playing. And so that's a uh, flourishing life must include play, say I. It's not to pretend, it's to imagine, it's to, it doesn't require a lot of expensive toys or equipment. It's an attitude, you know. Now, I'm a very, very serious person, but I, I love to play. Can I tell you a, a story about why I know Czechs are players? Oh, sure, tell me. Uh, this, this is a long story, but it's a wonderful story. It's called The Story Without End, and it hasn't ended yet. And every time you think, oh, that's the end of it, no, 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 no there's going to be more. 
I look for people that I think are players. I think I have a sense of people who look like they're alive and full of mischief, and especially kids. So I was on a train going from Olomouc, from Prague to Olomouc, and there was a bunch of kids, school kids, on an excursion with their teacher. So this young blonde girl, maybe 10 years old, I think, she comes up and gets right in my face and she says, I've seen your picture in the paper. I say, yes. She says, and I've seen your picture in the, in the subway, in the metro. What do you do? Who are you? What do you do? And I thought, I bet she's a player. So I got down really close to her and I said, promise not to tell? Yes. I am a professional bank robber. And she says, wow, I've never met a bank robber before. She says, where are you going? I said, I'm going to Olomouc. Why? To rob a bank. Why? Because that's where all the money is. She says, I'll be right back. So she went over and talked to her teacher. And the teacher looked up and saw, looked at me, and she clearly recognized me. So she said something to the child. He's harmless. Go talk to him. So she comes back, and she says, are you really going to Olomouc to rob a bank? I said, yes. She says, can I go with you? And I said, can you drive a car? No, she says, but I can run really fast. <laughs> and I can imagine when she went home that night, her mother said, what did you learn in school today? And she says, well, I met this man who's a bank robber, but he won't let me go with him because I can't drive. <laughs> and her mother said, what? <laughs> well, I told that story and, in Olomouc. And the next morning, I'm walking down the street in Olomouc. And I hear this young woman comes running out of a coffee house shouting, Mr. Bolger, Mr. Bolger. And I said, what? And she said, I, I was there last night when you told the story about the little girl and the bank robber. And I said, yes. She says, I have a car. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the end of the story. So the next night, I think I was in Havlicek Broad, and I told this story. And um, an old lady came up at the end, and you know, she knows the story now as far as you know it. And she says to me, looking around, she says, if you're in this town and you want to rob a bank, I have a car and a gun. I said, oh, my God. So uh, the next night, I told that much of the story. And this very distinguished man came up uh, to speak to me in his suit and tie on. And he said, if you come to this town and you want to rob a bank, you don't need a gun. You don't need a car. You need me. And I said, who are you? And he says, I'm the manager of a bank and I have keys. <laughs> <laughs> so night after night, I kept adding on to this story and people would come up afterwards and say to me things like uh, two young, beautiful young girls came up and said, you know, we don't want to rob banks, but if you do and you want to have fun with the money, get in touch with us. Uh Another guy came up and said, uh, listen, I, I'm an attorney. And my another guy said, my wife, I'm the mayor of the town and my wife is the police chief. If you rob a bank here, no problem. Uh, another guy came up and said, um, I, uh, my mother has always wanted to rob a bank. And here's her cell phone number. When, you, when you're here, get in touch with my mom and have a good time because she's a really cool kick chick. And this went on night after night after night. And so uh, there are two parts of this that it's not an ending story. I was sitting on my porch here in Moab, and two young people came riding up in bicycles. And they said, hello, are you Mr. Fulgham? Yes. Do you have a car? Yes. Can we borrow your car? And I said, why? They said, we're for checks from Olomouc. We've come to rob banks. <laughs> no, really? Yes, it really happened. And I got their picture. And uh, then when I, you know, using the, the camera that I can see, I saw well, all these Czechs walking around the streets with their masks on. I thought, the whole country is bank robbers. <laughs> and I worry when I come to the, the immigration next time and the guy says to me, well, Mr. Fulgham, what brings you to the Czech Republic? And I hope I don't say I'm coming to rob banks. <laughs> so it seems to me that you have different plans. <laughs> to be a pastor or a priest in a gothic church next time you're here so this is much more uh, interesting existence well you know I, I wouldn't last very long because when it came to communion i would give people gummy bears and that would <laughs> make them smile <laughs> now that uh, there is yet another concept in your new book that i think is admirable and it's worth thinking about, and you brought it from Japan. Well, it's not important that Jap the Japanese call it kintsugi. Uh, basically, it's appreciating things 
that are repaired because those things connect you with the past and they are not disposable cheap stuff right. uh, how you, you, uh, how important is that topic now when everything is ready-made everything is at hand and you can throw it away and buy something new cheap well it's an attitude uh, I'll give you two examples I have a beautiful bowl that as I've had for a long 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 time and I dropped it and broke it and then I have a coffee cup that my son and I may I got together at a very important thing remind me of him and I broke it and so uh, I'm not really good at this but my first thought was well I throw it away and get another but that that bowl and that coffee cup have a history they have been places they have been uh, cared for by me and I wanted to keep them and so the Japanese have this attitude if there's something that's lovely and meaningful you repair it and by repairing it you add to it rather mm. than just simply fixing it mm. it's an art in Japan they use gold uh, powder that many some beautiful things that have been repaired and you can take that same idea and put it over into human relations I think of people that I have gotten crosswise with or who are unhappy with me or their life has changed in my life and the relationship is broken. Hmm. The notion is to apply Kintsugi to thee by making the gesture of saying, I'm sorry, I blew it, I screwed up, I don't want that, I really treasure our relationship, what can I do to repair it? And that relationship becomes stronger and more meaningful and more lasting because that's what they wanted, but they don't know how to do it. And <clears throat> I, some of the things I treasure most are relationships that have been repaired and objects that have been repaired. It's interesting that should, you should say so because that's the way I was going to go because this is actually not talking just about marks, it's talking about people. And you, if you've been through something difficult with the people and you repair that relationship, it's more dear, isn't it? Yes, yes. I have an old car. You would think that I could afford a brand new car, but I don't want a brand new car because I have too many gadgets and widgets and I don't want to drive a car using a computer screen. So I have a car that's 25 years old and I keep it in good shape and it has dents and has scratches and there's a window that's cracked and people said, why don't you get rid of that car? And I said, no, 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 the car is experienced. And I can point to every ding on it and tell you about that. And it has never let me down and it gets me to town and back, which is all I want. So it's, it's brokenness, in fact, enhances value to me. Fantastic. Now, now tell me, there is, there is one more idea in your book. It doesn't seem pretty ecologic because if you, if you had everybody follow your example, the sea or Vltava River would be full of bottles because you <laughs> and I doubt that this is a clever idea but there's something about the idea that I find amusing and interesting you said that in various times of your life you put a message into the bottle and you threw it into the water so where are the messages? Because you say, when I was 30, when I was 40, when I turned 60, what were the messages? Well, first of all, it's my how to get in touch with me, my name and address and telephone number. And I then there's a, an, it's in the book. It says I, I'm reaching out to a stranger somewhere in the world and I love surprise. And uh, you don't know me and I don't know you, but you could get in touch with me and we might know each other. And for all the bottles I've dropped in, I've never had one come back. I have found a couple. Uh, sometimes I even put money in so that they could pay for, you know, the postage or whatnot. But it's a, it's a fantasy out of childhood. I remember somewhere reading this story about a message in the bottle. And uh, usually there was a genie that came out of the bottle. And I, I haven't found one of those yet either. But it's part of my sense of playfulness. And it's part of my sense of foolish joy. And I, to this day, I hope someday I will find, you know, someone will find the bottle and get it back to me. But. Okay, so now we are advising Czech granddads to do something very interesting with their grandkids, going to the rivers of the Czech Republic and throwing bottles. So do you suggest glass butter or plastic, uh, plastic bottle? What do you suggest? Well, Peter, you, you're asking me to have thought this carefully through. And of course uh, I have 
One of the things that I say to people nowhere in any of my books that I ever told anybody else they should live the way I live, think the way I think, or do what I do. I'm simply saying this is something I do. And you know, I've, I've been by the sea and I've been by the rivers. I don't see many bottles. Uh, people don't do this. In Japan, they grandfathers make paper boats and they write messages on the boats and put the paper boats and let them go. So there are other ways to do this. But I've always used, in fact, now I'm down to using really tiny little bottles, you know, the ones you can get samples of, uh -huh. put little tiny messages. And I realize it's, realize it's probably ecologically unsound, but <laughs> I, I'm not perfect, you know. I, don't, I do some things that are not quite good or right. But. No, I'm only teasing, you know. Uh, uh -huh. Have you thought about your books uh, as being your bottles? Because you said that nobody ever replied. So, so your book is perfect bottle. Yeah, no, that's that's what I say. Uh, every week I write something and put it on my web journal, which is free. I am casting it into the world. And there are people, I can't believe it, all over the world who read this. And what I'm saying, this is my message in the bottle. I hope you got it. And a lot of people, because you can do this with uh, Facebook, well, mm. you know, back a message or say something to me. And so I do get m messages back from those bottles. <laughs> people go way out of their way to get in touch with me. And I won't tell you how they do it, but they figured out a way to get to me. And because I'm pretty difficult to, I, I can't spend my time writing correspondence on that. But frequently they will send me uh, their telephone number. And so I call them up and I you know, absolutely leave them speechless. And they think, my God, it's Robert Fulton. said, no, it's just this guy that you wrote to me. I write to you. I'm calling you and saying hello. And I had some wonderful encounters with people that way. <laughs> now, uh the first battle you threw, the everything I learned in the kindergarten, it was, was it 1985 when it was published in America first? No. 1989. Yeah, and much of the material, this is what's really interesting. All of the essays in that book were first written in a minister's column that went out in the church newsletter every week. I did not write a book and submit it hmm. to a publisher. I had written every week to my congregation, something very much like what I'm doing now, one page, a story, a, an essay, whatnot, and sent it out. Well, I didn't know people would start passing that on. And pretty soon that kindergarten cradle was all over the place. And one day a New York literary agent called me up and said, my child who's in kindergarten brought this thing home. Did you write it? And I said, yeah. And I said, where did you get it? And she said, well, the teacher's mother saw it in a newspaper in New Orleans, and she got it out of the Kansas City newspaper, and somebody else sent it from their office in Seattle. So she said, do you have any more? And I said, I have boxes of this. I got 20 years of this stuff. And she said, well, why don't you make a book out of it? And I said, no, 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 why don't you make a book out of it? Because you're a literary agent and an editor. So she made, she took stories. I had to edit them because they were written one sentence at a time and put them in paragraphs, but that's all, all he did was to edit them. And that book was literally the minister's newsletter column to his parishioners. Now, and do you have that sense that... What is the story? Wait, 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 there's more story. This oh, is sorry, it. Sorry. So they, they offered me more money than I ever thought I would ever get in my life. I could finally pay off my credit cards, and that would be rich from my point of view. And then the book went in one year to the top of the New York Times bestseller list and stayed there for two or three years. And the next thing they do, they, I don't mind committing this, give this for paperback rights. Would you accept $1 million as an advance? And I said, I have to think about that. And I said, I thought about it. That's fine. <laughs> and then all, you know, there were five more books and they all went to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. And when I go to to authors' conferences, and they say, how do you get published? I said, I don't know. When they want you, they come get you. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's a wonderful fairy tale. Mm -hmm. And then when the books came being successful, then I thought, well, I guess I'm going to stop and teaching art and being a minister, and I will see what happens with this. Somebody offers to dance with you, you say, why not? And so now for the last 30 years, I have been writing books and, and essays and stuff. 
And I, what happened in the Czech Republic is always what happens to me. You develop a relationship with a person. There was an editor called, uh, named Ava Slamova, who turned, she's also a playwright. She's dead now, unfortunately. But she and I just clicked. We were like missing souls or something. And uh, she invited me to come. And uh, this is 1990, I think. And I've been going back ever since. Hmm. And I knew she was my kind of person because I had written something about tree climbing. I was doing a lot of tree climbing. And she had the first press thing all up in a tree. <laughs> These are my people. <laughs> I remember Eva very well. She was, she was extraordinary, wasn't she? Yeah. Well, she had, she had this theater group. She wrote her own plays and she used handicapped people in the plays and understood that everybody could do something. Mm. And there was one woman, very, very, uh, I don't know what her physical situation is, but she couldn't talk. But Ava wrote a play about the seashore and this young woman's job was to make the sound of the seagulls. <coughs> and Ava had found a part for this woman in this mm. play. I really miss her. I wish she was still around to see what happened. But we were great friends. She came to spend time with me in, uh, in Crete, and she was she had had cancer, and she had had a double mastectomy, and she lifted up her uh, bathing costume and showed me what that was like, and you know, that's how the, that's the friendship we had. Mm -hmm. Imagine. Mm -hmm. I was going to say that you. Were with the same, you've been with the same company for 30 years, the publishing company in the Czech Republic. It stays yeah. in Eva's house, even though Eva's not there anymore. Yeah. And I was going to ask, uh, you talking uh, in your books, you're writing about sort of basics, basic human kindness, ability to first listen and then to speak, ability to watch, but the world around is changing rapidly. And it's not, when you when you look around and I, I read your committee and I think, oh, who are you when you look around? Which type of person you are? And you see Trump, you see aggressive China, you see uh, debates on the internet that are wild and there's no kindness at all. What is happening? I don't think things are any different than they've ever been. We go through dark, difficult times. We've had lousy presidents before. <laughs> uh, we've had uh, we've gotten into stupid wars before uh, we had when I was a kid there was polio you couldn't go out of the house all summer because of the polio endemic and then there was measles and diphtheria and chicken pox and all you know there's always been the bugs are always out there and uh, we're always dealing with them and we've done amazing things with uh, uh, polio and in terms of China uh, you know China's come up China's come down I, I don't think the world is all that different. It depends on what you choose to pay attention to. And I'm paying attention to the, in, you know, Trump is there, but then there's the Black Lives Matter movement. And there's the anti-police brutality movement. And there's a whole rise of, a hundred years ago, women couldn't even vote in my country. And now we'll look at, we're talking about having a woman vice president and there are women in Congress. and. You know, I, I look for, I don't deny the dark side, but I look for, I can sit down with a bunch of motorcycle guys and find that there's some good people there. Thank you for the pr perspective, for putting things into perspective that uh, is sort of calming. Now, you, did you tell me what would you write and uh, put in that bottle? If, if there was a bottle at your disposal and there was uh, a river in front of you, would that be a message? except call me well there's the the english phrase that i like a lot which is keep calm and carry on and you know, that, that's what i put in my next bottle keep calm and carry on <laughs> i'm not going to live forever but the human race somehow finds it the courage the, the skill to move on and to survive and i you know i often say we human beings are an invasive species of the earth. The earth was doing just fine before we showed up. And now we're doing all these things that you know, climate change is I think going to be, I, I won't be around to see the worst parts of it, but we, we'll somehow figure out how to adapt to that. 
I mean, in 1351, 25 million people in Europe died of the Black Plague. Europe's still there. People are still getting up out of bed and going to work. I mean, some of the people are dead, but somehow the human race finds in itself the courage to go on. I, I, I always quote to myself a, a great line from the journal of Albert Camus. He said, in the midst of winter, I found there was within me an invincible summer. I can't say it any better than that. Thank you very much for saying that. Uh, thank you very much for your precious time. Oh, it's I, my I have to I have to say a few hellos. One one hello says here very velice zajímavé povídání, very interesting talk. Thank you. I'm watching you from Denmark. That, uh -huh. uh, says somebody. And I have to say uh, I have to tell you one thing. Do you understand the word hospoda? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. So there is the best hospoda in Prague, in my opinion, just around the corner. And there's a lady who's behind the bar. Her name is Libushka. She likes you a lot. And she, I, I promised her to, to say hello. So I'm saying hello. And the next time I come, I hope I get a free beer. <laughs> okay, I'll tell you tonight. <laughs> to tell her that you asked for a free beer. And I think you're granted free beer already. Can, can I give you something to finish with? Sure. A long time ago, I wrote this, and it's something I still believe in. Uh, I, when people ask me, what do you do? And I say, I'm a storyteller. And this is the storyteller's creed. I believe that imagination is stronger than knowledge. I believe that myth is more important and potent than history, that dreams are more powerful than facts, that hope will always triumph over experience, that laughter is the only cure for grief. And I believe that love is stronger than death. Amen. Mr. Fulgum, thank you very much. And uh, please come to have a beer in Prague. You can count on it. <laughs> Look forward to seeing you in person. Take care. Good bless. Stay safe. Stay safe. And thank you to all of you who were watching us. Děkuji pěkně. Hezký večer. Naschledanou. Yeah.